0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 10th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers. We're going to be looking this week at some things that have taken place in the area of federal taxes. More specifically this week, I'll look at here from here in Phoenix, an IRS publishing details on changes of what they're going to demand you send in for amended returns that are claiming research credit. The IRS has some additional guidance this week, and they did actually make a little bit of a, let's say, modification that's taxpayer-friendly, as friendly as you can be in this scenario. So we'll take a look at that. Secondly, we have a development this week where the IRS apparently made a simplifying assumption, shall we say that? In certain cases, when recomputing the amount of tax the taxpayers should owe to take into account the American Rescue Plan acts uh, under removal of certain unemployment compensation from being considered taxable income, well, the IRS, in essence, by making that simplifying assumption had undercomputed the tax on taxpayers in certain situations. Now the IRS has announced this week that if taxpayers have that situation and you discover that, hey, wait, the IRS refunded my client too much money for the unemployment uh, compensation exclusion, turns out the IRS, if it meet, if you meet these facts, they're saying, yeah, don't worry about that. You don't have to send it back in. So we'll talk about the situations where that will work and what exactly be looking for. The IRS also in the draft instructions to the Form 1120S for 2021 has finally specifically dealt with the question of what do you do about expenses that were used to give you forgiveness from a paycheck protection program loan. And what the IRS tells us here is what I had been suggesting for its essence ever since early this early last year when the issue came up on preparing 1120S returns. And I was saying that essentially, as far as I read the code, those were expenses related to exempt income, and as such, they would not reduce AAA. The IRS has now, in this year's instructions, effectively agreed with that, saying that it will not go into AAA, or saying more specifically, it'll go into the other adjustments account column, which if it's in there, it's not going to be in AAA. And our real concern is whether it reduces AAA, not really what it does to OAA because to be totally honest, OAA has no relevance except as a place for us to put things that didn't go into AAA. So, that as accountants, we don't have this meltdown of not having some place to put a number. So, but we'll talk about that when we get there and why that's important and what the IRS decided. Finally, we'll also talk about an information letter issued by the IRS that laid out for a accountant who is working inside of a company. And this, I think, happens to a lot of accountants who are employed by closely held companies where not only are they doing the tax return for the entity that you know they're getting a W-2 from, but they're also doing it for other related entities and related individuals and various other structures. And the question becomes, at what point and for which types of, of these related entities does that accountant become a paid preparer and at what point are they covered by the fact that the exception that they're an employee uh, doing it for the company with a broad view of the company and the letter didn't go and directly answer the question presented but did essentially lay out where the answers should be found so we'll talk about what exactly that letter uh, came told us and what it strongly suggests is the answer well, let's start out with that memorandum related to the amended returns that you might be preparing to claim a research credit. A lot of taxpayers have been proposed or been, I should say, approached by various organizations looking to do research credit studies and then file amended returns on their behalf that will claim amounts of research credit. And either they prepare the return or they would have the firm's standard accountant shall we say or tax preparer handle that claim for refund as we discussed back in october the irs had changed things somewhat and what the irs now has you know said was well beginning january 10th we think you guys are getting too abusive on some of these we're seeing some of these that simply do not appear to be shall we say following the rules and so because of that we're going to go ahead and we're going to require that certain additional information come with that claim for refund. Now that was in a general memorandum. This now is the IRS publishing the changes to the Internal Revenue Bulletin via memorandum to IRS employees that tells us how the program will be approached. And so what we have here are modifications to the Internal Revenue manual template the program now if you don't remember how this is going to work if the IRS if you send in an amended return and we have discovered via FAQs they did release on the same day they put a FAQ page up on their website dealing with this research credit issue and by the way both of those links to both of those are found in the PDF you can download on the current federal tax developments website that will give you this week's updates if you go to our audio and video page there and you'll discover you know this this kind. this will be there too so if you're doing this you may want to go grab that but in that we're told in the faq they made it clear previously they had said for you know for claims received on or after january 10th of 2022 now the faq indicates that what they meant there was for any claim for refund postmarked after january 10th now of course On January 10th or later, of course, that really doesn't matter much for you because obviously January 10th is technically the date that this broadcast is dated. Now, usually, as I said, I'll get it posted in the weekend, so you might be listening to it early. But still, at this point in time, you're probably not going to get something postmarked before January 10th. But assuming that you had, that will still be under the old rules beginning this week. Any such claim for refund has to meet the new rules. And what the new rules require is five things have to be in and clearly up front in the information. They said, number one, of course, you have to identify business components that form the factual basis of your research credit claim for the year. And those business components that are defined at section 41D2B have to be specifically identified. You have to list research activities performed by business department, and this memo tells us that must include a description of what the taxpayer did, how they did it by business components. It does not need to describe the four-part test under IRC 41D1 in detail. Language that simply restates requirements under the code or treasury is insufficient. So you're going to have to get somewhere in there, write a description of what you do. You don't have to meet the total detail there, the four part, but you can't just recite what the code requires. You've got to say how you did it, you know, kind of in that background. You have to give a list of all individuals who performed each research activity by business component. This can be a list table or narrative, but must include the first or last name, or this is something also different. They have conceded. If you give them the title and position of the persons or persons engaged in the research by business component. So you won't have to actually list names, first and last names, but you will have to give a specific title that could use to be identified, identify a specific person that's performing that. Fourth item is all information each individual sought to discover by business component. The IRS guidance to the employees is this list. This can be a list table or narrative providing the information each individual sought to discover. And then finally, the fifth is the total qualified employee wage expenses, supply expenses and contract research expenses. And it tells us the claims to provide total amount of each of these expense types. If you complete Form 4765 or its equivalent is properly completed, that would satisfy this item. Now, the way the program is going to work, if you send it in, so beginning on January 10th, the ones that are postmarked Monday, you know, the Monday of this weekend going forward for the next year, those, if they do not have those five items right up front in the claim, the IRS will Return the claim to the taxpayer, indicating that it is inadequate, and giving them 45 days to perfect the claim. Now, this is 15 more days than we were told was going to be given back in October, so that's, I guess, taxpayer-friendly but it does mean if they've come back you got 45 days. Now, in reality, you got 45 days or the end of the statute whichever comes later because that's the big issue here. If your claim for refund is being filed and approaching the statute date, then we have a potential problem if the IRS returns it to you stating that it is inadequate, you failed to state a claim, a proper claim, then if your statute runs out, you're in trouble. So that 45 days could be a hard deadline. And if you fail to meet the deadline or you don't provide the stuff or you don't perfect it in a timely manner, and the IRS has been quoted at some conferences as saying, well, you know, we could negotiate and extend that date in some cases if you interact with us. So maybe you can get beyond 45 days. They could extend the statute. But the bottom line is if you go past that date, and the IRS does just say, okay, this was an adequate claim, we're not processing it, then according to the IRS, according to the original memo we got, you have no recourse. Now, we'll see if that litigation standard holds, but that's the IRS's position. And part of that, which is also mentioned in the memo, to make this very clear, the the memo did mention that Agents who receive these claims, they're to look first for these items. They are not to actually start processing the claim. The IRS believes that that's why they have lost certain cases in the past where the courts have found it was an informal claim that put the IRS on notice of what was necessary, saying that because the IRS started working the claim, that was treated by the courts as a concession. That the claim had enough information. So they're telling them now to essentially, uh, for deficient research claims, they're going to essentially, in that case, they're going to say it does not meet the criteria for a claim for refund, got to file a valid claim for refund before the statute expires if you want to protect the opportunity to go to court. And specifically, it says examiners must not use claim letters or claim for refund language in reports. That is, they're not to reference disallowing the claims If a deficient claim was raised, such language could be deemed as waiving the deficits for deficient claims. So you're not going to see that language used. That's going to be the key. They are taking a litigating position. That if you have a deficient claim, and a deficient claim is defined as a claim that does not have these five items outlined in the way the IRS tells us in the original memorandum, they're supposed to be provided, subject, of course, to what's in the FAQ and what's in this IRM uh, addition as to what's going to be adequate. But if it's not adequate, they're stating you've never filed a claim. So as I note, the big problem is if the statute is approaching. If the statute's more than 45 days out, you got more than 45 days because you could always just submit a brand new amended return, which would come within the statute period, assuming that one did meet the requirements. Now, after a year's gone with this grace period, 45 days, then the IRS beginning next January 10th will just simply return it as deficient as soon as they've looked at it and discovered that these five criteria are not there or not there in the form they're supposed to be. And in that case, if the statute has expired between the time you sent the claim in and the time they reject it, then yes, according to the IRS, you're just going to be out of luck. Obviously, a lot of people were rushing to get claims in before the January 10th date. At this point, we're past that. So now you're going to have to be working under these rules or you're going to have to be the party that's going to go ahead and pay to have the court challenge to see if you can actually force the IRS to pay attention to this by saying that that kickback was not a rejection. The IRS's. Position right now is that you have failed to exhaust administrative remedies because you never filed a claim. And they are not going to treat that as an informal claim. And their belief, that's outlined actually back in the memorandum from October, will tell you why they believe they can take that position and why they believe they'll win in that position. Are they right? Again, we don't know. Until we get a court challenge, we won't know for sure. But right now, probably, discretion is the better part of valor. Uh, Your client probably does not want to be the one to go to court and challenge this unless you're in a position where, A, you have the funds to challenge it, and B, the cost of challenging it is going to be substantially less than the cost of having to comply, and you'll still come out ahead if you win. I mean, that's not going to be many clients are going to have that criteria where they would be able and willing to challenge. Uh, So in that case, you're probably going to find most of the clients we deal with probably are going to have to comply with the requirements here if they do a research credit claim. Next, let's talk about the IRS posted on their website. They updated the 2020 Unemployment Compensation FAQ. And interestingly enough, remember they had told us for significant frequently asked questions on their website they would put up a fact sheet whenever they changed it well guys this is a case where apparently this is significant guidance because they did issue the fact sheet on january the 7th this is fact sheet 202201, first one of the year and this is going to describe a really odd situation that came up it affects married couples who filed joint returns that the IRS went to recompute the unemployment exclusion on. Because remember, the American Rescue Plan Act retroactively made unemployment compensation non-taxable. The IRS said, "Yep, don't do amended returns. We're going to go back and just fix these, and we'll, we'll send you the adjustment. We'll make the adjustments as necessary. We'll send you back the money that you overpaid. And don't worry about that. We'll take care of it. Well, it turns out that the IRS wanting to get this processing done and it turned out that in at least some cases they couldn't get the detailed 1099 g information to tell them how much unemployment compensation had been paid to each spouse so some states or some situations they just didn't have that data at the time they went to write the check to the taxpayer so what the irs did and this question tells us right up front is they essentially decided that we're just going to treat in that case that the limit is not 10,200 for the married couple the limit is 20,400 now cuz again their theory is we don't know how much was paid to each spouse so we're going to assume for purposes of this computation that each spouse got at the most 10,004 or if we have more than you know If we are ten thousand two, if we have more than twenty thousand four hundred dollars unemployment compensation on the return, well, then we'll assume it was divided evenly. They each got ten thousand two minimum and anything beyond that is obviously excess. Well, of course, most cases, that's not going to be exactly how it worked. In fact, in many cases, it may have been a single spouse that got the entire unemployment compensation for the year. But. Nevertheless, the IRS will still have computed their refund and refunded the money based on that higher number. Well, what the IRS has told us now is essentially because they had made that taxpayer favorable assumption, if the detail was not available, they said, yeah, don't worry about sending money back in. Not not, not not, really the issue. Now, who exactly does it meet? So you need to, these are the three criteria where a taxpayer may have had this happen. So pay attention if you're reviewing what the IRS did and you're saying they got it wrong. Here's the criteria. First thing is the total unemployment compensation received by the married couple has to have been $10,201 or more. So there's your first thing reported by them on the return. So they had a reported unemployment compensation of $10,201, 200, $10, essentially, or more. Their modified adjusted gross income has to be below $150,000. Because obviously with that cliff, if it's not below $150,000, then it's not excludable. So they have to meet that criteria. And third, Form 1099-G data was not available at the time the IRS completed the correction. Now what this means is if your client was lucky and was processed early, there's a better chance the IRS did not have the 1099-G data. In that case, they're more likely to have been paid this way. If your client is in a community property state, generally, that unemployment compensation would be community property unless they had, you know, a prenuptial agreement or even a postnuptial, which is more difficult to make work. But they had one of those to get out of community property rules, which, again, the IRS would never know. So in most cases for a community property state, this assumption would create the correct answer. Because community property states, you always get to, as long as it's community property, it's divided automatically between the two spouses. This you know, shortcut would work for those nine states without any question. Where it doesn't work is for the other 41 states, which are not community property. So this excess that you might think needs to be paid back, that's not going to be something that comes up for an Arizona taxpayer, but it will definitely be something that would come up for, let's say, a Minnesota or a New Jersey taxpayer, that they may very well find that, yeah, they just got this assumption. And again, it's totally based on whether when their number came up, time to recompute their tax, did the IRS, you know, have the 1099G data or not. Also somewhat unfair, obviously, is if you had received that data later, right? You filed a return and you had properly computed the exclusion, Most likely, that's also not affected. I I suspect in those cases, the IRS just on later returns would just take your computations and run with them. So, interesting problem. But what it means is, for those who win this lottery in non-community property states, they're going to be treated as if they were in a community property state. So again, they had more than ten thousand two hundred unemployment compensation. They're modified agi was $150,000 or less and you know the 10, they they won the 1099g lottery it just wasn't there in the ARIS system yet they get to keep that money so sometimes you get lucky and apparently there is now just a pure luck component not the luck component just not being examined we all know that's out there right people returns don't get examined this is pure luck and perfectly safe if the iris comes in on exam apparently uh you know that that's not going to be the problem it would appear from this statement if they did examine the taxpayer the only way they should probably be going after the unemployment compensation is taxable would be if their adjustments to the return moved modified agi above 150 then in theory this wouldn't have been a proper cal- this would have been a calculation even if the assumptions were correct so then i would suspect they would come after the tax but if they come back and examine the return because let's say your client failed to report two hundred dollars worth of dividend income that's not going to suddenly make the agent go back and change the unemployment calculation it would appear at this point based on the arrest statement of course this is merely their faqs we've been told before they're not binding so that doesn't mean the IRS won't do the opposite, but I strongly suspect they won't. Next up, this the 2021 draft instructions for the form 1120s, and this came out on December the 22nd. It was noticed that this week, uh, Tax Twitter, Jan, Dan Choden, CPA from Pennsylvania, noticed this in the instructions. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, buried on page 45 of the draft instructions, the IRS tells us now what to do about expenses that we paid and deducted on the 1120s that were used to qualify us for cancellation, for basically for exclusion of our PPP, or should say, to qualify us for PPP loan forgiveness. Most tax software last year would have ended up with the PPP forgiveness in the other adjustment account, but would have had the expenses over there in, you know, net income from the trader business on page one. And so they would have reduced AAA. Now this causes a problem because now you're going to have an amount that's going to be stranded equal to the AAA. I should say equal to the PPP loan forgiveness that is stranded behind earnings and profits and because that was a cash loan right and you use that cash to pay these expenses that probably means you're going to have a pile of cash that you can only distribute if you're willing to take up to the amount of earnings and profits as a standard good old dividend qualified dividend and pay tax on it because that number was kicked out now as i noted last year the actual code tells us that aaa is not impacted by and there's an exclusion it says so you don't you know you don't affect aaa is not affected by tax exempt income and then parenthetically or the related expenses last year i stated if you followed the irs's logic all through 2020 they said consistently that these expenses you paid with PPP loan proceeds were expenses related to tax-exempt income. That is how the IRS justified saying those expenses would not be deductible. That only changed at the end of the year when Congress passed a law that said nothing more than those expenses will be deductible, effectively overriding any contrary portion of the code. But Congress never said that these expenses were not related to exempt income. Because if they weren't, you know, essentially, then there would have been no reason to put this in the code. And so they didn't say, so they didn't take them out of that category. They didn't say they're not related to exempt income. You know, they could have just said, for purposes of the exclusion under 262, um, you know, these expenses paid, Amounts paid to get PP loan forgiveness are not considered to be related to the forgiveness income. But they didn't say that, didn't have to, didn't. In the instructions now, the IRS and the draft instructions tell us specifically now that these expenses are going to be used, essentially, in the... Column 3 for AAA. What it says specifically is an S-corporation should include tax and income from the forgiveness of PP loans on line 3, should say in column D, and report expenses paid to PP loans that are forgiven on line 5 in column D of Schedule M2. Column D is the column for the other adjustments account. Obviously, if they're in column D, they can't be in column B, which is the column that has the AAA. So since it can't be in AAA, That means that AAA is not reduced by those amounts. Now, that raises some interesting questions that people run into. Um, First thing is, let's remember one thing right off. Primarily, this is only going to affect S-corporations that were previously C-corps. Because you have to have accumulated earnings and profits. And you cannot create that while you're an S-corp. There are a couple of other ways to pick it up. Uh, one way would have been to have merged with a C corp. So maybe you know you bought the stock of an existing C corp and you then merged that into the S corp. Al, if you did that, yes, you create it that way. So you didn't have to. You weren't previously a C corp, but your sub was. You know the entity you bought was so, or your Q sub was. So that would create a problem. The other way it is important is if you were to revoke your S election there is what's called the post-termination transition period. And that all that name really means is there are time periods after you transition back to C that you're allowed to make distributions and treat them as coming out of whatever AAA you had when you left S status. So it would affect that as well if you for some reason revoked your S status or you lost it because you fouled it up. Then yes, it would affect that. But now the question occurs: people are asking me, "Well, does that mean we have to amend last year's returns?" Because I use, let's say, UltraTax, I use ProFX, I use Lucert, I use Drake, I use whatever, and it it wasn't doing it this way. It was picking up the PPP loan forgiveness as a AAA item, but it was doing it was not pulling any of those expenses out of the calculation of AAA. So what do we do about that? And my answer is pretty simple. First, did you have any distributions last year that you treated as a dividend, a tax dividend? Right. 1099 DIV was issued because you ended up with a distribution from e If the answer to that is yes, then you're probably amending a lot of things because you would need to amend the 1120 S. Right. So now you're going to show you're doing that. And yeah, maybe it's not needed, but it's just going to be cleaner if you do. You're definitely going to have to amend the 1099s that were filed to set them back to either zero or the appropriately lower amount. You know, it's conceivable you might have distributed beyond AAA even if those expenses hadn't been there, so maybe you still had a dividend. But you would certainly correct for the fact that those expenses were not going against AAA, so at least a portion of that dividend on the 1099-DIV was not a dividend, And then finally, uh, you would go ahead and need to fix the individual returns. Now, you might say, well, what if we don't want to do that? That's dangerous. The problem is the IRS, because remember, this is your mistake. Your meaning, the taxpayer. You might say, well, that's not fair. The IRS didn't say. The IRS never said last year that you didn't take them to the other adjustments account. In fact, the IRS could argue they had the statement in the instructions last year that the other adjustment account includes, you know, basically tax temp income and related expenses are reported there. And they're saying, well, this is a related expense and we had been hammering that all of 2020. Why didn't you get the memo? Uh, Well, we didn't get the memo because your instructions you know, didn't say if that changed, didn't say it was going on. Tax software vendors are very much heads down. They're not going to make that assumption. So that's fine. We understand why it happened and why a lot of professionals may not have felt like they should move it. Although I will say I moved it on every client I had in that situation. I went ahead, they're in in any other adjustments account. Now, I only had, I think, one where there was a and situation that would have been impacted that might have been impacted and it wasn't impacted that year anyway you know otherwise it's just putting it in the right place in case we were later revoke the election but it is one of those things to do now if you didn't hit enp you didn't do a 1099 div payment you never hit enp then my theory is there's nothing to amend you just restate aaa to begin the year now, some accountants freak out because we freak out over weird things. And I'll freak because, wait, 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 AAA doesn't agree at the end of last year. That's wrong. You know, that's going to be an immediate exam. That's going to be, it's like, no, first thing is, it, it's not an immediate exam. I've never, I've never seen changes to things like that cause exams. Secondly, it's irrelevant. The 2022 return, the 2021 return, I should say, should reflect the proper beginning AAA. We know what that is. It's wrong on the 21 return. But changing it on the 21 return does not have any impact if we did not pay a dividend out of E&P. So unless there was some impact at some level to pay tax, we don't care. It's just different. Put a note on the return if this bothers you so much. Do a disclosure. Indicate that the beginning AAA has been modified uh, to take into account the instructions that were first put in the irs instructions to 1120s on page 45 for the 2021 year assuming it's on page 45 in the final version which it probably will be and you know, if you want to feel that way that makes you feel good do it but there is no requirement to amend the returns or amend anything unless it made a difference otherwise just correct beginning AAA, and as far as i'm concerned you're good that's all that needs to happen Finally, we had a very interesting information letter that was published. Uh, this is Information Letter 2021-0029, published on December 30th. And information letters are interesting because they're IRS informal responses that are published. Now, a lot of them tend to be issued to offices of various members of the House, representatives or the Senate. That's where we see a lot of these come out, but it can be issued for other reasons, We've seen them in various. This particular one, interestingly enough, appears to just have been issued to a taxpayer that somehow they decided to write a letter to. So in any event, that's there. Now, it was on December 30th. And you may wonder about, well, how come it's on this week's update? Uh, the IRS didn't get around to actually posting this until this week online. So we finally got access to it. This week is where the information letters got posted. So even though it was December uh, December 30th was the official post date. In reality, it finally showed up on the website this week. May have been a mistake in posting when they planned to, whatever, but nevertheless, it's here. Now, this case is a taxpayer. This taxpayer is a, you know, accountant who is essentially, you know, working with a company. He's an employee of a company. So he's an inside accountant. And he prepares, he or she, I should say, we don't know which because we have no name with this thing. So basically, they say that, you know, you've been, this person been employed for seven years, over seven years, and apparently just now got worried about this or got the IRS to write a letter, at least. So that is what we do. And this person prepares returns, uh, you know, for the their employer. So the specific company that's on their W-2, but also, and it's an S-corporation. Also prepares returns for other related kind of related entities. And these are partnerships that are LLCs related to the employer and individuals that are employed by your employer. Okay, it said by the taxpayer, which is a little bit vague in this structure because wait, I thought the person writing here, well, I guess they're not the taxpayer in this case. They're they're the preparing person, whether or not they're a preparer is another question here, paid preparer. So the question was being asked is, does this person have to sign these returns as prepaid preparer? And like any good tax question, the answer is it depends. And they go to an explanation about what it depends on. Now, they note right off that a tax return preparer is as a definition in Section 7701A36A of the IRC. And this is any person that prepares a return for compensation. Well, in that broad view, you'd be a preparer because, look, I'm getting a paycheck and one of my duties is to prepare the tax return for the company. Well, I'm preparing the tax return for the company. Isn't that, you know, that's preparing a return for compensation. I'm being paid to do it. So I'm a paid preparer. All of you in public accounting, even if you're not an equity holder in the accounting firm, well, you're being paid, you know, to prepare the return for compensation. So you are a potential preparer of the return. And the regulations under 7701 go through all kinds of details. But as a note, there's always one preparer who has primary responsibility. And in this case, it would appear that this person is doing way more than enough to be considered the person with primary responsibility. So, bottom line, we start out with the default, you're a preparer, but there's exceptions, right? Section 7701A36B states a person is not a preparer merely because prepare returns for an employer for whom they are continuously employed. Right, And that exceptions includes persons who prepare returns for officers and other employees of the employer. So starting point right now, the return you as an inside accountant prepare for the company that gives you your W-2, you're not a paid preparer for that. You do not sign the return. If you do, if that entity, you know, has is a corporation and has officers, corporate officers, Any of those people you do a return for, you're not a paid preparer. Similarly, anybody on the payroll of the employer. So anybody who you're preparing the return and they got a W-2, same company you got one from, that's also considered to be just not a paid preparer. So all of those returns you do not sign. Then they go on to explain that under the regulations, we expand up now a little bit more for the regulations. And they say individuals preparing returns for an employer, including returns prepared for an officer, general partner, member, shareholder, employer, are not considered tax preparers. Okay, good. That just repeats the code. However, Regulation 7701 15 f 4 further states the employee of a corporation owning more than 50% of the voting power of another corporation. So you work for a corporation. it has It, it has subsidiaries. Okay. Or the employee of a corporation more than 50%, you know, more than 50% of the voting power of which is owned by another corporation, right, is considered the employee of the other corporation as well. So if you're employed by a sub, you're an employee of the parent. If you're employed by the parent, you're an employee of the sub. Okay, goes that way. That's how they go with this, right? So what they're saying is, right, in this case, you're an employee of the other entity. Since you're an employee of the parent, let's say you're the parent company and the company has five subsidiaries that it controls the majority of. Well, you're considered an employee of every sub. As such, you're an employee. So if you do the return for the sub, probably because all day return, doing it for everybody, then you're considered to be fine there. So any returns you do for their employees or officers are fine similarly if you're in a sub you're considered to be an employee of the parent and that covers you as well now the letter doesn't discuss if if that kind of you know bounces through so you also then become indirectly an employee of all the subs of the parent that you're deemed to be an employee of but don't worry about that because that was imposed here so great I, I get the parent or sub, you know, parent or sub of my company, you know, all subsidiaries of the company that employ me, I can do that. The parent companies, I can do those returns, no problem. I can do the employees of any of those corporations, and I'm not a paid preparer. However, notice it just said corporations. And remember the question that came from this, uh, you know, basically inside accountant. Was wait, I do all these partnerships, these LLCs, taxes, partnerships. That's not really covered by this. And remember, the default treatment is you're a paid preparer. So while the letter never says this person needs to sign for the partnerships, it certainly doesn't say he or she doesn't have to. And I would say when you follow the regs, you're kind of with, well, I'm not exempt. Remember, I am preparing return for compensation. So I got to find an exception and I don't seem to meet any of the exceptions, either directly from the code or this expansion in the regs. So it looks like, let's say, you know, if you're preparing the tax return for the daughter of the controlling shareholder and the daughter doesn't work for the company, that'd be a paid prepare return. You're doing a return for a partnership that maybe, you know, all of the shareholders of the company are partners in the partnership that owns the building. That the company operates out of, that partnership return would also not appear to be exempt under this, right? You have to kind of watch that. So, like I say, it's kind of interesting. Now, remember, if you are found to be a paid preparer, you have to sign the return, which is what's mentioned here as paid preparer. You also have to obtain and pay for, because there is a fee. I mean, it's not huge, but there is a fee. A P ten you conceivably could end up having to get electronic filing if you do more than 10 of these returns let's say for they they have a lot of relatives you're doing the relatives who aren't employees of the company you got to get them to hire all these relatives because otherwise that could force you to electronically file because again remember that trigger is 10 so there are a few odd things to get you there you're open to prepare potential prepare penalties on the return so you have to remember that part of it right all of those things and there are a few other laws and rules and retention requirements etc that apply to preparers so you're stuck with those so probably won't make you feel good reading this unless the only thing you're being asked to do are you know returns of subsidiaries maybe returns of the owner who's an employee so we're good there uh, but you might want to check to see do you have are you being doing any returns if you are employed as an inside accountant and you're doing tax returns and you're doing tax returns for anybody else right for the company you may be a paid preparer and that may cause issues so you do want to kind of double check that and it's not a bad idea the letter is kind of interesting because it takes you through it points you at least to the regulations that apply here and once you find that you go from there to see if you can make it work this has been the current Feral tax developments for this week of January the tenth, twenty twenty-two. The first full week of the year is now done. Hey, we're doing great. Uh, as I said, you can give me any question. You can send questions or comments, Ed Zollers at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. I do continue to monitor the uh, Connect sites for the Arizona Society, uh, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois washington i'll do some postings there from time to time i take a look in every so often on Idaho site see what's going on there so i'll take a look there uh if like i said you have any questions go ahead and pose them if you're on one of those you can come in and we'll see how things go uh who knows what congress is doing if you're not aware i'm not going to talk too much about the build back better act because now it seems official they're not touching it probably for quite a while As I tell people ask me, just pay attention to what Joe Manchin does for now, because until he's willing to vote for something, we're not going anywhere. So you just keep everything where it's at. Hopefully your tax season is going well. I do have a few courses I'll be doing uh, before I clear out. The ones I'm doing in the public that aren't for firms, those will totally be for the Arizona Society of CPAs. So that's the only CPA societies I'm doing courses for right at this moment that are there. But I am going to be doing some for infirm. So I'll be going and doing that sort of thing. It's the time of year for that sort of thing to happen. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing you next week when we'll talk about all the stuff that comes up in the coming week in the area of current federal tax developments.